0: Hey everyone, Dr. Z, welcome to the ZDog MD show. Today I have a special guest. Look, I moved back to the Bay Area so I could talk to smart people at places like UCSF and Stanford and in the Bay Area. And I was all excited and then COVID hit and it was Zoom, 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 and I hate Zoom. So today I have someone I've been wanting to talk to since this pandemic started. Uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a Stanford professor of medicine and he has training and specialty in economics. Actually tell me, Jay, Jay, who, who are you, man? Uh, well, okay, so- uh, <laughs> Not a, in a metaphysical sense. Exactly.
1: Right? So I, I, I am a professor of medicine, as you said, at Stanford University. I've been at, at Stanford uh, on the faculty for about 20 years. I have an MD and a PhD in economics, uh, and I study health policy and health economics. I've been working on infectious disease, economics and uh, epidemiology for 20, 20 some years now.
0: So the reason I wanted to have you on the show was what you just said. You have the MD, Stanford trained, and a PhD in economics, which means you can see in a way that many frontline healthcare people, including public health people, aren't able to see the bigger picture. Now, you came to prominence during the, the pandemic as one of the co-authors of the Stanford seroprevalence study, which raised all kinds of interesting it, I mean, tell me about that experience because I was talking about your piece early on, saying, hey, if this is true, the actual uh, infection fatality rate of this disease is actually much lower than we thought. It's still higher than flu, but it's not, you know, as as high as they've been saying in
1: China. I mean, what, what was that experience like? Uh, I mean, that was incredible. I mean, it, it just an amazing, uh, in some ways, dispiriting, but also mm-hmm. exciting experience. So I, I, let me can I can I go back just a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so so what uh, what got me into it was I had done some work during the H1N1 flu epidemic in 2009. I remember and, that one. Uh, I mean, it was it was a big deal at the time, right? Uh, but luckily, it didn't turn out to be as bad as COVID. But uh, it was it was. At Especially at the beginning, people were really, really panicked over the high fatality rates that were, the case fatality rates that were coming up out of uh, all around the world.
0: I, I remember I was practicing hospitalist at Stanford, and everybody
1: was like, "We're all going to die." It was a kind of a catastrophization. Yeah, no, yeah. It's, it's actually, in, in the early days, it, there was good reason. There were these case fatality rates that looked like, you know, you know, Ebola. I mean, it just it looked terrible. Mm. Um, in the months that followed, what happened was this, people did seroprevalence studies and found that there were many times more cases than that of infections than there had been cases in the in H1N1. And the infection fatality rate, which turned it turned out to be about a hundred times less than the initial case fatality rates in the H1N1 case.
0: So let me let me reiterate that for people who don't understand some of that terminology. So. Case fatality rate is when someone is actually tested for a disease, presents to care, and is diagnosed with the disease, and then how many people die in out of that group. Correct. Uh, infection fatality rate is, well, of all the infections that exist, including ones that we weren't able to openly diagnose, what's the rate of fatality in that group? And it was 100 X different in H1N1. In H1N1, that's right. And, and, and so this got you interested
1: then in when COVID came around, I imagine. It looked like a repeat to me, mm. right? So it, it looked like the people were finding enormously high case fatality rates. I think uh, like World Health Organization said 3.4%. Uh, the- right. Right. Peace in JAMA, in February, that said, uh, you know, Journal of American Medical Association, that said, uh, two point two percent, and these are these are terrible these
0: are numbers, horrifying numbers. Yeah. These are the kind of numbers that would cause you to lock down the entire planet instantly because you're going to lose that percentage of your population yeah. if everybody gets
1: infected. You know, millions and millions of people dead. Right. If that's if that number is in the United States alone, alone. Uh, right. If, if if the the number is right, so. Um, but that was what happened to H1N1. I thought, okay, well, we do Do we really know how many people actually have it? Um, and you know, at the, at the same time, we're worried about how much testing resources we had. Remember, mm-hmm. there, there was a shortage ah, of tests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're, we're holding on to the test to, to, to look at people who actually have serious disease, which is what you ought to do from a clinical perspective. But then from an epidemiological perspective, could, can you extrapolate that to say, okay, the population at large is gonna, 3% of us are all gonna die mm-hmm. if we get it. Mm-hmm. Um, and... We don't know the answer to that, so that's what led to the Stanford serial Problem Study. Yeah, yeah, and the, and the other Problem studies I've worked on. So it was it was, it was this was this hypothesis, of like how many people actually have it, how deadly actually is it?
0: And so, how did you do this study? Because there was a ton of controversy around the methods and the actual. Uh sensitivity specificity of the assay that you use and all that.
1: Yeah, so that, that was a lot of like confusion around that, right? So if uh, we, we t- wanted to, to do a study that could be done very, very quickly, mm-hmm. put in the field very, very quickly. At the time uh, of the study, the, the FDA had approved for use some these, they're called lateral flow assay tests. They look like pregnancy tests, like little pregnancy kits, right? So, and um, the, the, the one we used had pretty good error properties. You know, every medical test has errors. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just not a, but there's, and, the, and you, know, you can't avoid that. That's mm-hmm. just the nature of, of, we don't have a tricorder that can automatically tell you me exactly what's wrong with you, right? We just, we need to have, we need to look at the numbers and, and interpret them. Um, at the time the FDA had put together a, uh, a, you know, had approved for use these little lateral flow assay tests, including the one we used for sale, but they hadn't approved them for, for general use in the population. Right? They, they, we could use them for research purposes, but not for clinical purposes. Mm. Um, so we use one of those. The reason was very simple. Um, if if we, there are two kinds of tests to do antibody testing. There's these ELISA tests, which are pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and then these lateral flow acids. For the ELISA's you have to draw venous blood. It's really hard in the middle of a pandemic to go out and find you know, can, you know, can I draw Vena's blood from you? Mm. A big vial of it, or, or I can just do a little finger stick. Mm. The nice thing about epidemiologic work is you can correct for the errors, mm, mm, which mm. is what we did. Mm, mm. Now, um, actually, I ran, I've, I've run now uh, three seroprevalent studies: one with uh, in, in Santa Clara County, one in LA County, and one in with Major League Baseball. Oh, um, did you get to meet a lot of baseball? Players? I got to meet a lot of the <laughs> not no baseball players, but I met. A, I mean it was surreal i got to I got to be in a meeting with all the owners. It was just oh it was, wow. it was fantastic that's nuts. I had to you know contain myself when I met the Yankees <laughs> owner but you know that's another thing <laughs> yeah so we got so I, I ran three different studies and uh the 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 interesting thing about the studies was we we used very different methods to try to uh to try to l- disseminate them so the Santa Clara study was the first one mm. um we it's it was it was a big study two thousand some people th- uh in the Bay Area, actually, in a you know, in, in Santa Clara County, right? Um, we wrote the study very quickly and we released it through an open science process, like
0: a preprint,
1: a preprint, right? right. Exactly. So now the traditional path involves sending it to a journal. The journal then sends it to three anonymous reviewers. No one will hear it about it, uh, except me. And that's I—that's how I spend my life dealing with this, three anonymous reviewers, all of whom always hate me. Um, <laughs> um, so, so you're not used to the whole planet hating you at
0: once. Yeah, right? no, that was, that was interesting.
1: So we sent it to, and I got 10,000 peer reviews in one day. Oh my uh, gosh. And it was, I mean, you know what? Actually, it was kind of interesting, exciting. I learned a lot, right? right? So we'd made a, 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 what I would characterize as a relatively minor error. Mm. In in standard error calculation, mm. um, which we corrected within a week, right? And um, you know, we, the the number that we got was absolutely stunning. Yeah. What we found was that the, that the, the disease was fifty times more prevalent than people thought based on just the case numbers. So people thought in Santa Clara County there were a thousand cases as of April third, I think it was, right? Um, but in fact, there were. Based on the study, you could tell fifty thousand people had had, had had some antibody evidence of it. Right. At the same time.
0: Right. Which would correspond to an infection fatality
1: rate at that time of what? About two in a thousand. Two in so a thousand. So that means not out of out of a thousand people who got the infection, nine hundred and ninety eight survived. So 0.2%,
0: 0.2% fatality. So double what we think the mortality is for flu. Yeah,
1: although I'm not 100% sure I know what the flu, I know, that, I know what the evidence is, is, it's unclear in the flu. No, no one's done the same kind of infection fatality rate numbers that they've done with, the, for COVID, they've done with the flu. So in many ways we're comparing apples to oranges when we're comparing flu. Yeah, so to, we, yeah. Let's, let's, let's come back to that flu comparison because yeah, yeah. it is interesting and important, but like I think the key thing is, how much would you change your life for a, two in a thousand risk? And, and there's a couple other things we learned. Uh, so one is that uh, the 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 if you're older, it's much higher. It's probably much worse than the flu, actually. Yeah. If yeah. you're older,
0: order of magnitude. Yeah.
1: Is. Yeah. Like a thousand. So if you're if you're over seventy versus if you're let's say you're under uh, fifteen or under ten. Yeah. It's it's on the order of a thousand to one difference in mortality for probability. Mm, mm, mm. Right. So the flu is much more deadly if you're older. If you're over seventy, let's say sixty-five or seventy. Right. And if you're under- The, the flu f- or COVID you were talking about? Uh, the, I'm sorry, COVID, COVID. COVID. Yeah, I, yeah. I apologize. Yeah, you're, it's, it's COVID is much more deadly if you're over 65 or 70. And if you're under under say 40, mm. the, the flu's worse. Mm. Uh, uh, that's what the seroprevalence study and, is-
0: And, and, and that was the sense that I was getting early on too. And there, your seroprevalence study was supporting that. And you said something which we're gonna get back to. I think that's the theme of this. How much
1: would you change your life for a two in a thousand chance, right? Yeah. I, and I think uh, that age difference is important, the absolute number is also important because that, well, let's get back to that theme. Yeah, absolute versus
0: relative risk,
1: yeah. yeah. Um, so the, the the interesting thing about that, so we released the LA County study, it was immediately accepted in JAMA and published. Interesting,
0: instantly. It's the same reviewed. number,
1: peer-reviewed, yeah. yeah. I mean, the, I've never had such an easy time with review. I mean, it was very strange, so. Um, <laughs> uh, whereas the Santa Clara study, it. Exploded Twitter. I'm not on Twitter myself. Thank uh, God, God my for friends. you. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, actually, probably good for my sanity. It really is. Um, but the, 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 uh, uh, and everyone on earth was paying attention to it all at once. One study, right? Right. Um, Preprint. And everyone was convinced I was absolutely wrong. Yeah. 100% wrong. Yeah. Uh, because people had fixed in their mind New York City, where the death rate was higher. I mean, actually, we know from problem studies that it was higher—the actual mm. infection fatality rate was higher in New York mm. City. Mm. Um, so now, since then, fifty-some studies from around the world have been done, and there's a consistent theme: the, the infection fatality rate is somewhere between two and three in a thousand, just like what we found in Santa Clara, just like what we found in 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 uh, in the in the um, in LA County, and um, the places that have higher density that where you think did worse—you know, Bergamo. Uh, New York City, they did worse. Their infection fatality rate is worse: five in a thousand, six in a thousand. In some Spain, maybe ten in a thousand.
0: So okay, there's a lot here, um, and 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 again, this gets me fired up because I've been talking about this myself. <laughs> Why would an infection fatality rate be different in, say, a New York versus a Santa Clara? Walk me through that.
1: Yeah, sure. So we think about infection fatality rate as if it were just a Static. Yeah. Well, it's just it's as if it's the the virus itself. It's a feature of the virus. Here's the virus. Here's what's infection fatality rate. That's that's wrong thinking. Mm. Uh, it's a function of the of the virus, obviously, the biology of the virus, but also of the host, mm. and also of the healthcare system taking care of the the, the patient. Oh, do they survive? Do yeah. they get care? All right. three of those things matter a ton. Ah. Uh, so, for instance, if you look at the case fatality rate for this disease, just case fatality—forget about infection fatality rate. This is the number of people who had the disease who actually died from it. It's declined very sharply since March and April. Sure has. As the cases
0: up, deaths down. Has the
1: virus changed, maybe yeah. a little. I mean, there's some mutation, but not yeah. not enough to think that it's it's had any appreciable change. Yeah. It's what it is is a few things. One is the, the the set of people that are getting infected are less vulnerable to it. Yeah, they tend to be younger. Uh, and so they just don't die at high rates from it. The second, we were better at managing, better at treating it. Right. right. So they're the dexamethasone exactly. Not and intubating everyone. Not killing people in a bit with with ventilators. Right. I mean that's that that was seems like a really good uh, good good idea. Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> uh, which which by the way didn't did wasn't clear in the beginning at all. So not to disparage people who are intubating everyone, but we just didn't know.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. I look. I, I have a lot of sympathy and people were really brave going in when yeah. we don't have the numbers. I, I honor that absolutely. Yeah. Um. Yeah. It, but it's it is uh but it is absolutely the case we've learned a lot about how to treat the disease right and we're much better at managing it than once were right um i, I think that kind of news ought to get out more right that seems like an important fact our our understanding of the disease shouldn't be frozen in amber in, in march
0: no oh, you know so you're you're appreciating the choir because i just did a video on this on cases up deaths down yeah i actually think that there is a lot of catastrophization and misunderstanding. And there's been a polarity that I've not seen in science ever. And it shouldn't be, it should be looking. And and the thing is folks like you, and this is the thing I criticized your trial as well, but also put it out there and
1: said, hey, this is what's going on. This is a critique, et cetera. Well, science, that's how science that's works. That's what
0: you do in yeah. science. I mean,
1: I didn't mind the science. Right. Uh, I mean, of course we talk, we, we look at the data, we try to interpret it. That's what you're supposed to. I mean, that's the fun part of science. But, but, but the vitriol and the,
0: the censorship too, like is your, your partner in that, one of the most respected scientists actually has done papers and papers and papers on how we get science wrong with our own biases, right? Was accused of severe bias and, and censored.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it was absolutely shocking. So, so like Buzzfeed attacked my family from but, Buzzfeed. Can I can
0: I um, say so? Anytime I see anything in Buzzfeed, if it isn't ten reasons celebrities have done something that make you go, "What? I'm shook." I don't listen to it because it's so clearly biased.
1: Yeah, this this was. I mean, it was really kind of. Buzzfeed Just attacked your family. Yeah, so my wife was, was, was involved in, like, she volu- like my daughter actually volunteered as, as a, like we got a, it was a lot of community involvement. Like the feeling around the study in Santa Clara was a lot of volunteers, a lot of people, it was, it was, a, it was a really problem. good feeling, yeah, right? So yeah. my wife uh, was super excited about the study. She's an oncologist, she's a she wrote, a, wrote an email and uh, to her friends, encouraging them to sign up And somebody leaked the email, which had some information that was not quite right, and then to BuzzFeed. And then BuzzFeed made her international news. Oh my god! Um, Which is, I mean, that was the hardest part of this—just getting my family involved with it in in a way that I didn't expect.
0: What's the agenda for that? That you're somehow minimizing the pandemic and gonna cost lives? Is that their angle? I think so. I think yeah. that's
1: part of, I mean, so there were other, like another, the same Buzzfeed author then, then wrote a, uh, an accusation that somehow because people gave money, including like, I guess a JetBlue executive right. to, I saw to, that. to Stanford. Right, 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 5,000 bucks. 5,000. So five, which is a rounding error on the cost of a trial. Well, the, in this case, <laughs> the study was, we ran it really cheap. Like, I mean, it was, you know, less than a hundred thousand dollars for the study. Nice. Um, uh, but, but the you know, uh, they gave the money to Stanford and somehow I'm, uh, I, I'm going to change the results for the. It's just ridiculous. You know what, when you, Jay, when you're in Big Jet Blue's pocket, anything goes. Bro. I mean, the, I mean that it was really kind of him to give money for the study. Was I'm grateful, and, right? and that's, that's fine. That he had his own agenda, which was probably hey, everyone I, has, everyone I has an agenda. Everyone has an agenda. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I, my agenda was to learn what that number was. Right, and I think we now know it. So right, it's, so so your your feeling now is it's somewhere
0: between point two and 0.3% 0.3 three. Three yeah. uh, infection fatality rate. That's the me- median in around median. the world. Median yeah. around the world. It may be higher in places like in New York. Yeah. Why, why was it higher in New York, do you think?
1: I mean, I think there's lots of reasons. I think potential, like one, one is, I think uh, the set of people that were infected in New York were older Yeah. and uh, the institutions where they were infected are less capable of dealing with it in the early days of the epidemic. Right? So yeah, there's, York there's York something to this and the new and the, and the, uh, the 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 fact that it was older people in nursing home settings that weren't cap- you know sort of equipped to to manage it right. Um, I think that played a big role in why it was higher in New York. The other thing is I think there's uh, and this is a theory I've seen I think I mean there's something to it like when vi- when viral load is higher, when you're exposed to it multiple times over and over again, you you, it, it, you just get
0: a worse outcome. So I talked about this with Monica Gandhi yesterday on the show, UCSF uh, ID doc, and her theory of viral inoculum uh, correlating to severity. Oh, I saw that. that was yeah, yeah. And she actually posited the same exact thing in, it's a theory, like here's a hypothesis yeah. in, um, in New York was that people are in the built environment are on top of each other, especially minority communities, which were hardest hit. And so as a result, you know, if you're out in Queens or somewhere, you know, and you're just living in this multi-family home, it told to stay indoors, right? Uh, what are you doing? You're you get a high viral inoculum, and so that that's again, it's a hypothesis, but it's interesting yeah. because that would affect your infection fatality ratio if that is a component of how severely ill you get. Correct, yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: and i also, also explains why nosocomial spread, like hospital spread, is is so exactly you know, so important. Right here, right? We talked
0: so. about Dr. Lee, the guy in uh, the uh, the uh, ophthalmologist in. Wuhan, who first sort of broke this news and he died and he was 33. And the thought was he's an ophthalmologist. So he's seeing patients this close to their face getting viral uh, inoculum right in the face. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and now we've learned a lot from that. That's, that's why we end 95 and face shield in the hospital and PAPR and all that. Yeah. Right. If we can. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so, do you think the infection fatality ratio, if you just looked at one community, like say, Latinos, Latinas. W- w- would you think it'd be higher there from what we're seeing? Uh,
1: I mean, I, I, I th- from what I've seen, I think that minorities are harder hit with this epidemic. That's absolutely true. So yeah. bl- bl- black communities, my uh, Latino communities are a bit harder hit, especially in California. Latino communities make up the bulk of the the the, the death. The disease, yeah,
0: forty five percent.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. incredible. Um. Uh, I don't think the infection fatality rate-
0: Sorry, 60%, 60% of cases,
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's, in, pretty, in California. it's shocking, yeah. Right? So, uh, so, but, but I don't think that the infection fatality rate is much higher conditional on getting it. It's just they're more likely to get it. I see, uh, but is, it might be a little higher. I mean, I, you know, it's hard to you have to see to sell, because
0: right? is there pre-existing disease more in that community? Chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, disease. Yeah, so poverty. that's that's the question, right? So, right. like, if
1: you have these underlying conditions, of course, you're more likely to die from it. If you're older, you're more likely to die from it. Things right. like that, we know for a fact. Right. Once you control for that, if you're Hispanic, are you more likely to die? That probably, I, my guess is probably not.
0: Interesting. Uh, I think yeah. it's
1: mostly those pre-existing conditions and the fact that you're more likely to get get it in the first place.
0: Now, one one proposal I might say is well, if if viral inoculum does matter, if that hypothesis is true, uh, and Hispanic families are more likely to congregate together under one roof, uh, you might see actually a higher infection fatality rate in that group. It could be, yeah. yeah. I
1: mean, you know, there's a study that was done in Mumbai, in the Dharavi slums in Mumbai. Yes, I saw that, explain it. Uh, I mean, it. The first, the, the the prevalence was enormous. I mean, I think it was like, I It was I can't 80%? 80% yes. Yeah. <laughs> or 60, like, 60, 60 or 80. Yeah. And I actually, so I, I actually talked to some of the study authors, uh, the studies who ran, ran the thing. I mean, essentially the, the idea they have is that the lockdown put people, you know, this, this is a slum where like people, 10 people live in the same house. Yeah. You, and there's police walking around, making sure that if you walk out of the house, you're gonna you're gonna be arrested. Um, so if they put 10 people in the house. They probably spread the disease with the lockdown, uh. but then an enormous, uh, enormous lo- you know, viral load, you can see with the 80% f- uh, antibody number, right? Right. Um, but the infection fatality rate was really low. It was minuscule. Yeah.
0: Like I think they report, now it might be an underreporting to some degree, but like a 200, 300 deaths out of yeah, all Yeah, it that, was really,
1: yeah. really, really Tiny. low. Uh, so, yeah. pa- I mean, so part of that is they don't have the same, they don't have the diabetes, they don't have the obesity, they don't have those kinds of predisposing conditions. Yeah, 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 because um, they're thin. And, and they're, they're younger, and right? And they're so, younger, yeah. Um, so I mean I think I think we're still learning at least I'm still learning quite a lot about the disease.
0: Well and you know the other thought that I had, and again, this is just pure mental masturbation, is the idea that that group may be exposed to so many pathogens on a daily basis, including coronaviruses, et cetera, that they have some innate T cell immunity or mucosal immunity, something that we don't have.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. I think there's some evidence of that even in the United States, right? Yeah, so exactly. I right. saw this really interesting study where it looked at, I mean, it was a small study, so I don't know if it generalizes it, or is, is, it will hold up when it's done larger, but uh, people who have young kids, mm. you know, if you have young kids, uh, I, I, have, I have three kids. And yeah. when, I, when they were little, I had colds all the time. Yep. Um, people people have young kids are less likely to die from it.
0: And that really tells you something. Like yeah. I, I remember I had a severe cold actually just in January before it was really widely prevalent. And I never had antibody testing or anything. So I don't know if it was COVID, but I doubt it. Um, no one else in the family was sick. I caught it from a friend who was in Las Vegas. And uh, I wonder whether getting those really jazzes your T-cell immunity, kind of like getting a BCG vaccination or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I
1: think there's, um, there seems to be increasing evidence that that T-cell mediated immunity does matter quite a bit. Yeah.
0: Um, But even talking about that, people are like, well, stop minimizing the catastrophe. I don't understand this. this
1: I don't (laughs) understand, like, this is not politics to me. Yeah, yeah. This is is a really important epidemiologic Phenomenon that we absolutely have to get our hands around. We need the best science possible. I, I don't understand the politicization of, of, you know, oh, you're on team apocalypse or you're on team doom, right? <laughs> uh, Your team, team, uh, team whatever. denial. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: um, I like that team apocalypse versus team denial. Yeah, yeah go. <laughs> it, that's really what it is. And it's uh, we. I mean, we say that we don't understand it, but we do understand yeah. it. It's an election year, all that. But as scientists, we don't, we don't condone it. Is what we're trying to say. Yeah, you got sucked into it, right? Because by definition, now you're on team denial because you did science that doesn't support the the press narrative of X, Y, and Z.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, what I was taught in 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 uh, sort of the public in public health circles, we we actually give people the the, the right information, the true information. We don't unduly stoked panic right. just in order to get the result we want right which is essentially you are going to comply with this order or that order right we don't do that we, you know we, we we tell people okay here are the risks here are the and let and people are, are you know we, we have to trust people to to react to that appropriately not many times they won't right. some, but many times they will right but on net if you want to maintain trust in the public health community the absolute first thing we have to do is tell them the absolute truth about what we know and what we don't know
0: so what you've nailed here again is something I talked with Vinay Prasad on the show about, which is authenticity. We suck at it in medicine. We prevaricate. We think we don't trust the public to do the right thing. We are paternalistic to a fault. So when Monica was on the show yesterday, she said, you know, I'm an HIV researcher. I believe in harm reduction. How dare us? Preach at people. Wear a mask, you dummy, you stupid person. And you know, are you? Or do you want to kill grandmothers and this and this and this? That's not the way to communicate public health. You communicate the uncertainty, but you communicate what we know. And her whole thing as well. If masks reduce inoculum and it's a low risk intervention, then maybe we, you guys should do that, right? But it's your decision. I don't want to mandate it. And if we get eighty percent compliance according to our data, maybe that's a tipping point.
1: But you know, again, it's a it's a hypothesis. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think um, I mean I'd amend that a little bit. So I mean, yeah. I, I agree with that actually. But the only thing I'd amend is it's 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 related to the harm you really really are seeing, right? Mm-hmm. So if we really are seeing it's a three percent mortality disease, yeah, then I'm okay with more more Draconian. aggressive, yeah, uh, you know. But if if on the other hand we're really uncertain about that three percent, which we were, if we really don't know, we should tell people, look, it's looking like three percent, but we don't know. Let's see. Uh, here's what we're doing to try to figure it out. right. Uh, we should just be honest about what we don't know. I think that's to me has been the most shocking thing that we've done the public health people and doctors have donned this mantle of absolute knowledge in an, in a place where I, I've read a lot of this literature. We, there's a lot we don't a lot I don't know, even though I've been reading the literature scientifically, right, right? So we just don't know we should say that. Why is it bad to say that when we just don't know?
0: You know, and and what it does, there's a side effect of that, that we're seeing now, which is when doctors and public health officials say, don't wear a mask. And then in the next breath, wear a mask of any kind. I don't care if it's just lace panties over your face, wear that. We look like idiots. And on top of that, the public then, which isn't as dumb as they're portrayed by the intellectual elite goes, now, wait a minute. (laughs) And they should. And they should. And then then what happens is, and you see it in the comments to my own videos, right? If I do a video kind of leaning in one direction, a billion people comment the other direction. If I lean in in that other direction, a billion people comment it. The public just is trying to find truth, right? And and it's tough.
1: And I mean, you know, that's okay. Like we're having a conversation uh, there's stuff I'm learning from you. You're, I hope there's some stuff you're learning from me. And we, we basically, that's what science is. It's it's a conversation that leads to more data, that leads to more conversation. That's what it is. So your, th- what you just said is
0: absolutely reasonable and rational and Buzzfeed attacks your family.
1: Yeah, so I mean, that was tough, I have to say. I mean, that was probably the hardest parts of the the whole the whole the whole work on this was just feeling like i dragged my family into something. Mm-hmm. There's one thing to go after me, it's it's another thing to like, but but in any case, like let's let's leave me aside. Um uh so we put this paper out, uh we we it uh, we find this number, point two to point three, mm. and then a whole series of studies start coming out from around the world to find the same number. Um some, you know, many of them published. Uh, you know, it's it, the 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 peer reviewed literature. I think now has established it.
0: So, so let me ask a question though. So, what two to three times a flu is still catastrophic, man? Well, how do you
1: respond to that? No, it is. It's it's. We should we sh- and it, there's no there's also I'd amend that there's also no vaccine. Right, no vaccine, and we didn't
0: have treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is worse than the flu for those reasons. Thank you. because I think
1: that the denial of,
0: I think. A lot of people perceive a denial. This comparison
1: with flu is very charged. And yeah. the truth is, yeah, it's it's worse than the flu. And I, and I think for older people, it is absolutely we should treat it like it's much worse than the flu because it is worse than the it flu. Is, yeah, yeah. Um. So so for instance, um, nursing homes, right? So I, I I just looked at a paper that said that nursing homes often share staff workers. Right. So like one staff worker works in nursing home A, also works in nursing home B. Mm. Uh, why, we should be using our testing resources to make sure that when shared staff workers move back and forth, they don't bring the the virus back, back and forth with them across these nursing homes. I, that seems like a completely reasonable Outcome of the fact that older people are much more vulnerable, especially people with uh, with with you know comorbid conditions.
0: And, and you've been a big advocate of, of protecting vulnerable groups. Yeah, like that's the, the whole
1: that's the whole point of this is to is to learn is who really should we be using our r- relatively limited resources to protect and 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 you know when we uh, raise alarm, who should we doing it for? There are costs to raising alarm, right? So, like, if <laughs> I panic you uh you may take actions that's the whole point of the raising raising the panic and the alarm but those actions will have very little effect or much less effect on the spread than the costs that you pay and that society pays for those for those actions and,
0: and the problem with those costs are they're often intangibles like the, I have had fans who've become fans of my show since we started the COVID adventure. And the reason they became fans is they have generalized anxiety disorder or they have some level of anxiety. They have been jumping out of their skin, watching the press catastrophize about this and generating the fear that I think was the medical uh, establishment was complicit with because they are seeing it on the front lines in a very biased way. Oh my God, my ICU is full of people who are dying, including some young people. And therefore, anything we can do to get the public to, to behave is gonna be important, right? And then what ends up happening is these Poor individuals who are have a tendency to anxiety are losing their minds. So they tell me, I watch your show because you seem rational and you have opposing viewpoints and you're not just saying we're all gonna die. And and I think, why should I be the one who's doing that?
1: <laughs> well, you have a good audience. I mean, yeah, but that not? ought to be the, the general I, I agree with that. I mean, yeah. I I think um the 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 uh, I, I don't I don't really understand it, but it seems like people want. Uh, especially the press, seems to uh, want to create this panic. So every time there's a study that comes out that that uh, you know a, a, a child has died, which has happened absolutely from yeah. this disease, yeah. you're gonna get this panic headline from the press. Now, one of the things I've learned from the seroprevalence studies, again, from around the world now, not just mine, um, is that there's a very wide range of clinical presentations from this disease. Mm. It ranges from you know, somewhere between 30 to 40% of the people that get it have no symptoms whatsoever. They can't remember, they have the antibodies, but they have no symptoms that they can remember for from it. Um, a, 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 even, you know, maybe even a larger part have relatively mild symptoms. It's like a cold. Term. Right, right. And, and a small fraction have this horrible viral pneumonia that kills them, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we focus all our attention on the viral pneumonia and none on the fact that 998 people are gonna recover from it.
0: Yeah, that's a feel good hit of the summer right there. Like that's a positive story and they're gonna develop immunity and this whole panic about, well, no, we're never immune. That's another press thing. Yeah, that's in, that's it's ridiculous. insane. Like you know, no other virus does that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, what do we? Oh, you know, yeah, but and 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 the, the the related piece to that, you, like you said, one story about a child, M I S E I H I V. I guess strep throat. You can't you can also yeah. can't have a vaccine.
1: Yeah, for. so it's, like I say, it's a legitimate scientific question, but it's the an one we now have an answer to. Right. You do have, you do develop immunity to this virus,
0: and and the thing is because we have now millions of cases. And we can look and there's been like, I think two documented cases of actual reinfection. Yeah. One was like, it was totally mild. The other was more severe.
1: Yeah. And so you could think in a population, there's variance, right? Yeah. But still. Well, two out of millions, right? So, yeah. And as you said, the first case that was a reinfection, it looked like he, the guy had was protected. Mild, like he, mild. yeah. yeah which is case, what
0: but... you would expect, yeah. even with a cold. Like yeah. you get a cold one year, you may get it again the next year, but it's gonna be m- minor, mild. Yeah, if,
1: you, if it's the same virus, you, won't, you, you even if the antibodies fade, you ha- you may have you know T cells or other other mechanisms of immunity that make it so that it's not that you won't get sick, but you'll get sick much less, it won't, right. it, won't, it won't create a severe you know severe illness.
0: Now, 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 one thing that's going to come up, and this comes up a lot again in the catastrophization camp. But what about the long haulers and the terrible damage to the lungs and the
1: cardiac damage and the brain damage and all the other things? You know those happen with with influenza. Exactly right. So so my son, uh, my young son, thirteen year old now, a uh, couple of years ago got the flu. Now He'd had the flu vaccine, mm. uh, and he still got the flu. Mm-hmm. Right, which uh, happens. Yeah, it happens. Yeah. Um, I mean, and it was it was fine. Like it was it was a little, little worse than I thought would when you normally would get. Uh, and he was getting better. And he woke up one morning and he couldn't walk. Oh my gosh. Uh, he it turned at I was you know I was going through all the panic things that that if you when you go through medical school you always yeah, have like Guillaume Baret like That's exactly myelitis right and I'm like oh God we're I'm in, so it turned out it was it was it was a, a benign myositis. Ah uh, thank God and within a week he was walking again. Flu has all kinds of strange side effects. It has neurologic side effects, it can have cardiac side effects. Um we put these in context, right? These are these are things that happen, absolutely can happen. And, but we have a lot of information about how frequent they are. Are they? Are they likely? How long lasting they are? are they, if it was Guillain Barré, would have been terrible. If, yeah. Like, if, if it's beyond, benign myositis, it lasts a week and he's okay.
0: So it's funny because my daughter had a viral syndrome when she was three and couldn't walk, and again benign myositis. Yeah. And uh, but again, you go through the panic. But the thing, so the point. The point being. These things happen with viral infection. This is a new viral infection that we don't have a vaccine for that is novel to the degree that it's novel. Although we seem to have some innate immunity from cross-reactivity to coronavirus. And yet we are spinning it as if the world is ending. And the thing is that would be fine if we thought it was actually gonna cause less harm to spin it that way than not. But it's actually causing a lot of harm in terms of the response. So whether it's suicide rate going up, substance abuse, uh, economic catastrophe, mortgaging our children's future, creating intergenerational divides. Now,
1: yeah, I was hoping we get to talk about that because that's something I think has been vastly underemphasized, and uh, it's breaking my heart. So, like, let's talk about suicide. Yeah, uh, the CDC released a report. Uh, I think in July. Uh, that's that. that it, it, was a, it was a report where they they they, they ask about suicidal ideation, like how many su- suicidal thoughts have you have you had any serious suicidal thoughts? One in four, eighteen to twenty four year olds. One in four, eighteen to twenty four four year olds in June had serious thoughts of suicide. Ah,
0: uh, you know. So my my assistant is in her early twenties, and she only just recently told me during the early lockdown stuff we didn't have her in our house, and you know, kind of kept her on a not a furlough we were paying her uh, but but she isolated now this is a hypersocial person in the prime of her life who is now told don't leave your house to sit there with your dog and she told me now that
1: it was so awful for her you know yeah for a disease for her 20, early 20s probably one in 10,000 death rate i mean ifr i mean I, I, we're basically imposing asking young people who are meant to live in community not not me i was i was a hermit but everyone else <laughs> me too um, i yeah, really um, enjoyed this uh, but yeah. every, but every <laughs> uh, but you know I, we're, we're not meant to live alone in our house uh hold up it's going to have consequences it's going to have severe negative consequences psychological mm. psychologically and we're already seeing it um so i, I I mean, I think, but that's that is just the beginning of the cost of the lockdown mm. uh, worldwide. There are reports of hundreds of millions of, of additional people starving as a result. Because you know, you you you, you talk about economics. Uh, so one of the the the, the, the themes that I've heard argued against me when I make this point is, well, look, uh, you're talking about the lockdowns, and, and there's some economic costs, but what are they relative to the lives we save? Right. But it's not lives on one side, economy on the other. The the economy is really important to the lives of the people who are in the midst of it, and if people that are, are hundreds of millions of people around the world that are on the edge of economic disaster. And you put the push them over, you you destroy the world economy. It's not just dollars; it's hundreds of millions of people. Starving. And that's what the UN has said. The I mean, UN is finding, And right? I
0: said this like in the first month of this pandemic, I said, you guys seem to have this false dichotomy between economy and lives. Blood is treasure. It's their, It's a transitive property. When you start having unemployment, the suicide rate goes up. In the world, when you shut the economy down, people starve to death. And this idea, and and, and I'm gonna rant for one second and you may or may not agree with me. I feel like my own tribe of people, the healthcare professionals have held the rest of our country hostage with their catastrophizing around this, which was done with good intent. These are good, smart people and they're right. We've had deaths and terrible outcomes, but they fail to see the bigger picture. And Monica Ghani on the show yesterday said, as doctors, it's
1: our responsibility to see the bigger picture. Our job is to show people that picture. I'd say it's even more than just, I mean, I I call us the Zoomocracy. I mean, and I'm in it, right? So like, I I can, I'm fine. I can be on Zoom and I'm I'm not gonna lose my, well, maybe who knows, Sanford will keep me up. Oh, we gotta talk about that, yeah. Um, But I (laughs) I think think, um, I'm fine, right? So like, why should I care about them? well, I, I mean, my job is to tell people what's happening in the rest of the world. Right. I think. Yeah. Um, you know, in in uh, there's this program called GAVI, which is a program for vaccinations, international program of vaccinations. Uh they've halted yeah their operations because of, of the lockdown. So polio comes back. Polio measles comes back.
0: Yeah. So it was never gone. Measles is still here.
1: Yeah, we're gonna see a resurgence. We may even see a resurgence of polio in the United States because people stopped taking their kids for the for the you know TDAP vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. Um so a cancer screening, they're, mental they're health. We're gonna see, so uh, we've had good news from cancer for the past few years. We've actually had decreases in cancer-related mortality for the first time in, I mean, in my memory anyways, mm. um, for three or four years in a row. That will reverse. We're gonna start seeing later stage breast cancers, later stage prostate cancers. People stop getting screening. People actually even stop getting treatment for cancer, active cancer during yeah, the epidemic. I've seen that. At
0: HIV uh, patients are losing their viral suppression. Monica
1: was talking about that, because they're not coming in. Tuberculosis, millions of extra tuberculosis cases. Cause you know, tuberculosis you have to treat over a long period of time uh, with, with a regular antibiotics. People come in, you know, around the world because they're- Directly observed therapy, all this other stuff. Exactly, yeah. mm-hmm. and people, that stopped. Mm. We're gonna see a resurgence of tuberculosis deaths.
0: Well, so, so let me ask a question because this is very gloomy stuff. Like honestly, I like, you said earlier you were heartbroken. This is what keeps me up at night because you know, here we have this platform, we can get this, like you said, we're part of the Zoomocracy, like yeah. we can do this, we can get this information out, but it doesn't sink in. And what it does, it, I worry that it even contributes more to this polarization because there are camps that get so emotional about the damage we've done from our response and camps that get so emotional from the United States' perceived failure
1: relative to other countries in terms of, you know, mortality per million. Well, I'm heartbroken on both. I mean, I think we, we, but we, we, in public health, Need to balance. COVID is not the only uh, threat to public health. We need to we need to vote. We need to understand that there's all kinds of public health problems. So, 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 what do you think? What do you think you would say the United
0: States should do? And then I want to talk about Sweden and Europe and Asia too. But what do you think the United States should do? So here's the problem: all this disaster from our response. Uh, and then the danger of the virus, which is worse for the elders and people with comorbidities, uh, and it's less than we thought initially. And we have a little better treatment now. So
1: what do you? Well, I mean, do? I th- Look, if I had to characterize the American response, it's exactly backwards. Yes, we have quarantined the healthy, and we've exposed the vulnerable <laughs> to the disease.
0: That's it. Yeah. And, and Monica said yesterday. Let's
1: flip that around.
0: For Monica said yesterday we were exactly backwards as well. We've. Favored the rich people who can survive this the Zoomocracy like you and I, and we've punished the poor. So we've actually told them stay inside, lose your jobs, get twelve hundred dollars a month.
1: Yeah, or or uh, or you know, you 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 go out and expose yourself, deliver the groceries to me. Essential meet. worker. Yeah, I mean, I just I don't understand it. I mean, now I could understand three in a thousand, three and a hundred deaths. Different rate, story. Different. Like you could you could imagine, but even there, you'd want to. You'd want a focused response on figure out who really is really In high. that three percent, right? Exactly. Or, or and there may be people who are less vulnerable. I mean, you 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 tailor your strategy around the numbers you're seeing. Yeah. But we haven't done that. Yeah. We've, done, we've gone the opposite in in many ways. I think New York is an absolute disaster. New York. I mean, most the the highest death rates in the world happened in the north in the Northeast early in the epidemic yeah, of the United yeah, States. Yeah. Yeah. And um, multiple reasons for that probably yeah. that will become clear also more
0: in retrospect. And our rec- retrospectoscope is going to be—it's sh- going to be highly, uh, highly in- inditing. I think of a lot of behavior that we had earlier. Yeah, yeah.
1: Can we can we return to? Uh, you, were gonna, you were asking me earlier about about uh, uh, like the scientific discussion around this. Can we yeah, return to that? Uh, I would love to. So I, I've been really concerned about censorship in science around this epidemic. As have it, I. Yeah. So and so, like you mentioned, John Ioannidis, one of the you know, foremost uh, physicians in the world. Researchers in the world studying, studying. I've, I've had the honor to be able to work with him. He did a interview early on in the epidemic that was suppressed by YouTube. How do you suppress John Ian Needies? I don't know. I don't understand it. I, 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 my view of science is that it's a conversation. Uh, we have to have a. We have to have uh, the ability to be to express views that are not popular, or else we don't. We can't have a science. We can't <sighs> have science. Um, I mean. Uh, so, like, the idea is that somehow, if if somebody is expressing a view that is contrary to some somebody's interpretation of some some public health organization, like, you know, world health organization, or whatever, it's ipso facto dangerous to say those views. <laughs> that is a form of population control. That's what it is, right? <laughs> it really is. Yeah, and it's it's fine. Okay, if you if you know with one hundred percent scientific with certainty that some fact about is the, wrong, yes, yeah. Like okay. vaccines cause autism. Right. So what's the right. right response? You say you say, look, the vaccines don't cause autism. Right. That's the right response. That's and right. Here's the evidence. That's right. Um you, you if you if if you have a situation of a new virus where the science is emerging rapidly and we're learning new things, I've changed my mind about fifteen things about this virus as I've read new papers Me over, too. Over, over the course. How could you not?
0: Oh, oh yeah, but you know what? Read the comments in my videos. You flip flopped on this five times. Heck? I mean,
1: there's new evidence coming up, right? So yeah. but, So in that context, scientific censorship is criminal. Yeah, I agree. Um, and so I and I I think. Um, and we've seen this over and over again. There's a, there's a paper by uh, a set of papers by this this uh, this scientist uh, Gabriela Gomez on yeah. herd immunity threshold.
0: I love her work. Yeah.
1: And what she's what what, she, what I've seen her write is that she sent her paper to scientific journals. The editors won't even send it out for review because they're they're saying that it's it's too dangerous to she, her findings oh suggest a lower God. herd immunity threshold. Now I don't know if it's right or wrong. I don't. Doesn't matter. Yeah, let's just have a scientific conversation about it. Like that, why is that so dangerous to talk about that you wouldn't even send it out for review?
0: I mean, um, the last time we did stuff like this, it was the Inquisition in Galileo was standing I felt, there. I felt a little like that at Stanford. Um, yeah. I
1: mean, I think, the, Tell me I about think it, yeah. the, well, we'll talk about that in yeah, a bit, but yeah. I, think, I think the, um, the knee jerk reaction to censor people you disagree with inside the scientific community has been absolutely terrible. One one of my Stanford colleagues uh, actually wrote a New York Times article arguing for essentially a censorship board for uh, for uh, articles that are are not in 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 open science.
0: (laughs) Hey, look! Look, I kind of am an expert in misinformation management. I have always look. I, I look. Remember those Bakersfield docs? You know they were they were proposing some similar ideas to what you were saying but their their data was a little and you know they, they were clearly I've a little I talked to them. I mean
1: they yeah. they look there's stuff I agree with about them stuff I don't necessarily agree with them but a, why should we not they not should they not be part of the conversation? Uh,
0: exactly. So when that video came out a million people sent it to me. What do you think of this? And I said, "Well, let me do a show on what I think. I agree with them that lockdowns are harmful. I agree with them we're overreacting, creating fear. I disagree with their use of the data on this and this and this. And I disagree that YouTube pulled their
1: clip." Yeah, it was it's ridiculous. Why would you do that?
0: all you're gonna do is also solidify this idea that there's a conspiracy.
1: I mean, I think the idea that media organizations or Stanford has some obligation to censor opposing views is absolutely anathema to science.
0: And and, you know, uh, my wife is on a listserv uh, at Stanford so a bunch of people that I know at Stanford got on a list serve on the Stanford listserv email and said we hereby disavow Scott Atlas.
1: Oh, that's disgusting.
0: Yeah. So, so can you can you tell me a little about that? Sure. So
1: yeah, and a lot of my colleagues signed that letter too. Yeah. Um, you know, people I respect. People love. I respect and know are on that list. I mean, yeah. people I love are on that list. I mean, yeah, my like friends. Um, I mean, I disagree with them about some of the things, right? I, I, but you know, but we can love people and disagree. That's the yeah, difference absolutely. Without shutting them up. Yeah. Right. right. So I don't. I th- I think. Um, uh, Dr. Atlas Scott uh, is 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 the special advisor to the president on COVID. He has certain views about the about about the the nature of the epidemic. Uh, they're actually closer to my views than than my colleagues. Um, so among those views are things like uh, it the, the 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 disease is less dangerous for kids, hmm. less dangerous than the flu for kids. That seems like there's solid scientific evidence, mm-hmm. and yet. The, the letter doesn't seem to, it seems to like paint this picture about the danger to kids. I think that I think my colleagues are just wrong on this, where they disagree with I, Scott on this. I on agree, when I read the letter, I'm like, these guys are just wrong. They haven't read yeah. what
0: Scott is saying. Now look, I don't agree with Scott on everything.
1: So Now, yeah. I think they've also mischaracterized what uh, Scott has said. So for instance, yeah. Scott has repeatedly said he's not in favor of a herd immunity strategy. Actually, what, like, we should talk a little bit about herd immunity. Herd immunity strategy, yeah, yeah. yeah like what sure. does that actually mean? Yeah, so, yeah. herd immunity means that, um, uh, so when we think about herd immunity, it's we, it's we think about it as a single number. But again, just like infection fatality, it is not a single number. Mm. Um, what herd immunity means is that when a, a new person gets the disease, how many people are they going to spread it to? Yeah. If it's less than one, then you've reached herd immunity. Herd immunity, yeah, right. If it's, it's going to be more, squashed, yeah. exactly. If it's more than one, then you're you get more sort of this exponential growth, right? Right, or whatever. right, right, right. Um, uh, that happens with every disease that where immunity actually happens. That's yeah. just that's just normal. Yeah. Um, the 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 number. If, is a function of how people interact in society. So if I interact with a lot of people I'm, and I get it, I will spread it. If, yeah. I, if, I, if I'm you know, sort of more fearful about the disease and I'm spreading it, then, uh, then uh, your know, social distancing happens, then herd immunity, uh, you, you could get lower herd immunity thresholds because one person getting it doesn't spread to a lot of people. Yeah. Right? So it's a function of the behavior of people as well as again the fun- the virus itself, mm-hmm. it's not a single number where you say, okay, here's here's we've reached it. Mm-hmm. And ironically, you can reach it. Cases are declining, and people stop taking those precautions, and it goes back up again. We, right, we go in and out of herd immunity.
0: Right, um, auto regulation, homeostasis of the population's behavior. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. So
1: so that's that's actually so it's it's more complicated than that. That's right. I have heard personally. Scott has told me I've never told the president. That uh, uh, in, I, that he's in favor of herd immunity strategy. Yeah, he is not. He's specifically said that yet. The letter my colleagues wrote said, accused him of that. Just falsely, it's just a, and you set up this straw man where where uh, where, uh, where, uh, where I where I mean I just I don't understand it like it's like they weren't listening, um, and partly it's the press's fault like the press yeah. has mischaracterized him as well
0: for sure. So what they, so this this is what I think happens, and and you can correct me. They they read the press, they read some CNN, MSNBC Scott Atlas knows nothing about science, and he's a, got a president's he here. Was the,
1: he was the chair of neuroradiology at Stanford for years. I mean, I just don't. I just it's, it's my, my wife worked with him right, and and the thing is, I look. I, I,
0: you. If you hear him talk again, he's reiterating some of the concerns that we have. He's never said let it rip through the population and develop her. He,
1: that's that's the, the exact opposite of the strategy. That I know he's been telling the president. Right, right. And the thing is, you've talked to him.
0: Have these colleagues talked to him? No. And this is what happens. You have in group. This is his tribe of people. Now excommunicating him and witch hunting him because that's what's happening on social media. That's what's happening in the halls of academia. Is this how you met? Okay, what? Okay, just, just play with this for a second. What if you're right and Ionidas is right and in retrospect, we realize you guys were actually banging the right drum and these people who censored you were wrong, okay? That is gonna be a criminal act that,
1: that they did that cost live. I mean, I think there was an attempt to cancel me, right? I just oh, for thought, sure. I yeah. just, so I don't, I mean, I, I, um, I don't actually care. I get canceled. I, I mean, I just, I want, I, what I really want is the, the, the data to drive the policy. Yeah. That's what I really want. Yeah. And, um, I, I think Scott would say the same thing. I mean, it's not personal for him. It's, it's like, let's let the data drive the policy because the co- the cost on lives are high on both sides of this decision. There's no riskless option here. Right. So whether you lock down or don't lock down is not a, uh, okay, let's just stay safe on one side. So that my, my colleague started the letter with the principle of do no harm. Yeah. How do you do no harm in this situation? <laughs> There's a plenty
0: of ways to do harm. Censor a colleague. For instance. For, on insufficient information. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Now I imagine, okay, so let's dig into that a little more and you can refuse to answer this if you like. Your own paper was attacked internally in an in a almost politicized way. It wasn't so much about, you know, the science. And I was reading these things about the internecine drama at Stanford. And I'm yeah, like, so, I know these people, what are they
1: doing? Uh, it was absolutely shocking to me. I mean, I, I feel like my academic freedom was attacked, and and I've been at the university for almost thirty some thirty thirty plus years actually. Yeah. I the the motto of the university is let the winds of freedom blow. I don't think that they acted. The leaders of the university have acted in that way toward the my study, and uh, I I think that just it's been absolutely shocking to
0: me. Are you tenured? I am. Okay, so you can say this kind of thing. Well, I I don't care if I lose my job. You know what? I'll hire you. <laughs> We could be like, uh, you know, we could have one of these like uh, Sunday morning. It's been uh, really enjoyable talking PBS shows. It would be really fun. No, so 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 to this thing. Uh, I was shocked when I saw how this thing was played out. and I knew that what the press was reporting wasn't the full story. It was still concerning. I was like, well, is there a lot of bias here? Is this thing, you know? And so I was waiting to talk to you about this. And you know at some point I'll have one of one of the colleagues that's attacking you guys on the show and see what they think because it'd be interesting, right? Yeah, but I would love to see that play out in a way that isn't just politicized because it's just, it,
1: yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, so I had a uh, I got to do a debate with uh, Stan Vermond. Oh yeah,
0: I know Stan. I know of Stan.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. Um, it's it's so a uh, standard. So it was really interesting. Like he's he's a he's a Yale, uh, uh, head of the public health department at Yale. Yeah, R- really sweet guy.
0: Talks really slow. <laughs> he? I was listening to your debate, going, "Oh my God, I got
1: to put it up to three X." Okay, well.
0: <laughs> except when you talk, then I have to slow it down. Okay, dear. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I love I love fast talkers. I, but so but
1: I think I need mean, fetish I mean, Like mind. the thing is that he's open. Right, yeah. he wants to talk. He wants to have a conversation. I wish we had that spirit at Stanford. Yeah, I, I don't think. I think uh, in, in some ways we have lost that. Yeah, and it's been just dis- dispiriting for me.
0: Yeah, I agree. Well, you know, the two folks that I interviewed from UCSF, Monica and uh, Vinay, are deeply embody that spirit of open discourse. They they may politically disagree. They may it doesn't matter. They only want to have the conversation yeah. in a
1: polite and civil way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's the thing. I mean, I don't. Internally, I don't think. I mean, like the. So I don't know what John Eady's politics are. I have literally no idea. Right. I I don't, and I'm pretty sure uh, if I if I were to talk with Iran, that we would disagree about politics. It doesn't matter. We're doing science. Right. Like what we move, we move to what the data tell us.
0: Iran Ben David, who, was, ben a coach, David, uh, who yeah. was also a resident when I was in attending there, I'm going to try to have him on the show later. Yeah, uh, and he, was,
1: we, he was the lead author on the Santa Clara study. Yeah,
0: so I can David. I can dig in a little more with him. Yeah, it's great to be next to all all yeah. these smart people, you know. But but so it's been just a mess. It's been hard, I imagine. Forget, it's been hard on you clearly, you and your family, but that's secondary to the thing that it's been hard on our scientific advancement and understanding this virus. Because when you suppress these ideas, what happens? They pop up on Twitter in a weaponized form. So now you have frank anti-maskers that are taking masks and ripping out the lining so that they can do the hygiene theater without the actual filter. You know, I mean, this crazy stuff, none of that would have happened if we'd just been open and honest.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think uh, it's the same thing with the anti-vaxxers, right? So like same if you're- thing. Uh, you know, you're actually the funny thing is like the uh, the well, we should talk about the vaccines. Actually, let's let right? that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think uh, if a vaccine does come out and it's effective, yeah, the the fact that the scientific community is acting in this way will will create doubt around the the vaccine. Who's going to get it? Forty percent of Americans don't want to get it now. Yeah, and and you know, like because the scientific community very very clearly seems politicized mm-hmm. around this.
0: Mm-hmm. 1,000%. And, and remember in the early days of fear, when we were in the Imperial College sphere of influence and we thought 3 million Americans were gonna die, there was not an anti-vax voice to be heard. They were terrified. They wouldn't open their mouth. They saw, oh, because when push comes to shove, if there's a vaccine, they're gonna be first in line to get it when you're f- afraid for your life. Yeah. But then as this thing spun out, now they've actually been empowered in a way that we haven't remembered in recent memory. That's
1: because the scientific
0: community has made fools it of itself. They've I mean, made yeah. idiots of themselves. Yeah. It Does it make you wanna hit stuff and throw stuff? And I mean, cause I, I get emotional about it. I mean, I, may, I don't, I'm not built that way. <laughs> I forget sometimes that I'm talking to scientific introverts who have like Spock-like control. Spock, whereas I'm the opposite. I'm just like, throw the table over and kill everyone.
1: Oh, well, when, when they were attacking my wife, you know, but no, that, 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 that may be- That's me, too that, much. Think, but yeah, but other than that, most, but I mean, I, I still, I still just want to know what the right thing to do is. Right.
0: Well, I, there've been things where I've gone back and forth because I'm not convinced one way or the other. And I will literally sit up at night going, I put out a video today saying this and, is it really a hundred percent right? No, it can't be a hundred percent right because we don't know yet. So am I doing more harm
1: than good saying it? Now, What's the harm reduction? You have to say what you currently believe. And then when, when you find new evidence, you change your mind, that, you, just, you say it.
0: That, that's the thing. So, so that, 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 that's, that's what it is, but, but it's hard. It's still, it, yeah. for me, it's emotionally difficult because I tend to, I in, 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 involute this emotionally. Whereas again, that's why I'm not a researcher. So if I were a researcher, I could have a little more, you know, equanimity.
1: I mean, um, it's- Meditation helps. It's hard to like, not enough. It's hard to admit that you're wrong, right? That's just, but look, if, if you can't do science without that. Because mm. um, new data come out and you change your
0: mind. So so let me ask you a question, speaking of data. So, so, and I've been meaning to ask this of you. So you read an Atlantic article, all right, And it says, here's all the cognitive distortions that people who think this, uh, th- that we've shown in this, Thing. And it was the, actually the opposite version of what I've been saying, which is here are the cognitive distortions that we are showing that cause us to catastrophize and misunderstand the science on this. They were saying, well, here's all the reasons that America screwed it up and not taking it seriously, and so on. And we have this terrible mortality rate and the high case rate and all that. And they would say things in there, just throwaway things, like, and then there's Sweden's policy, which is folly. And they put a link, and they wish they hadn't done. How
1: do you respond to that? I mean, the America, U.S. has higher death rate than Sweden right now. Yeah more cases in in per, per million in the United States than Sweden. I, I don't, I, I like uh, to characterize Sweden as a failure seems like, uh, I mean, they've made mistakes. But like, yeah. so in the early days, I think- uh, Not protecting waited, the elderly. Yeah, in yeah. April, like they wait till April, early April to, to essentially protect their nursing homes in, right. in, a, in a serious way. Right. And I think that led to some of their higher deaths, but that's the same when the US made the same- US mistake. did the same thing,
0: yeah. 45% of deaths were nursing home patients, 0.6% yeah. of the population. So. It, 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 so Sweden actually took a very different approach. Now,
1: I think it's more consistent with what a, a democracy does in the context of these kinds of things, right? So the idea of the lockdown, we were copying what's what Japan, oh sorry, Japan, what China did, right? Like this idea, but the, the idea style. that we could mil, uh, do this militarized lockdown, I don't think is consistent with a with a constitutional democracy. I agree, um, and I, you're seeing this play out in places like Australia or Victoria, where where they have This, I mean, essentially a very draconian lockdown. You can only go out for an hour. You can't walk, you can't, you have to, if you're gonna go to a park, you have to walk alone. Um, You know, uh, I don't think that's consistent. I mean, people will play with that for a while if it's a 3% mortality rate. Sure. But they won't put up with it forever. And we have to, that's a constraint on public health in a democracy. You have to take that into account. You can't pretend like, oh, it's it's, it's really unfortunate that people won't put up with this forever.
0: I said that in February. I said, what we're seeing in Wuhan is absolutely never going to be feasible in this democracy. It's just, not, and you could just say, well, then people will die because of that. But then that's the cost of living in a constitutional democracy that you will not have that kind of control. And one thing I would say to that is life is to be lived, not, we don't live in fear of death or dismemberment every mm. single second we're awake. And that's an ethos that I think is worth supporting. And again, that's a personal thing I'm editorializing.
1: Yeah, no, but I, I think that's completely right. I mean, I think, um one of the unfortunate outcomes of this pandemic has been to train people to think of other human beings as just bags of germs <laughs> to be avoided. You're right. It's 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 You're it's going to take right. a long time to repair the damage from that.
0: It's a social dis- dissolution, and then what happens? Now we have you know unrest on a massive level. I'm not saying they're directly correlated, but I'm saying they're directly correlated. Oh, 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 there. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: I wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think the the uh, People are psychologically frayed. Yeah, I am.
0: Yeah. You know, M- Monica, when she came yesterday, I said, like I said, you don't know me. And she, the reason she came was she wanted to talk to another human being face-to-face about things she cares about. And she hasn't been able to do that. Zoom is, listen, Zoom is great from a technological standpoint. What a wonderful tool, right? I hate it. It makes me wanna die. And and the reason is I'm an extrovert. and and being in the room with someone like you and I right now could not have the same conversation. No, I'm reading know. your body language in real time. It's a 2000 frame per second refresh rate. You know, we're able to talk over each other. It's a beautiful thing that
1: humans do. Yeah, I mean, we're built for this kind of community. We're built for this kind of communication and we're, we are not built to be alone, yeah. which is essentially what this, uh, what this epidemic has done. And, we, and the public health community said, look, that's, that's what you need to do. So,
0: so that's what you need to, they're telling you be inhuman. Yeah. And, and, and also now we changed my mind, be inhuman in this way <laughs> <laughs> instead of how out- was there. Well, l- l- let me ask you something. So you look at the Asian countries, cause you can look, okay, okay. US, Sweden, UK, deaths. Deaths, yeah. deaths. Then you get to European union deaths and then you get to New Zealand, uh,
1: Singapore, Hong Kong. Whoa! So actual viral suppression. Yeah. I mean, I think I think there's a few lessons to be learned for this. So, so like, so New Zealand. Let's come back to New Zealand because New Zealand is really super interesting on this front. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think uh, that some of the Asian nations that suppressed the virus, they caught it very early on. Yeah. When contract tracing, the kinds of things that we say are, are like the, the mantra of like test, trace, and, and quarantine, actually can be effective. Yeah, early, early. Yeah. But by early April. 50,000 cases in Santa Clara alone. It's out of the bag. I just don't, I don't understand why people thought that that was gonna work.
0: And how do you contact trace asymptomatic cases? You'd have to test everyone, hope there aren't a bunch of false positives. And, yeah.
1: Yeah, so I think that that, that was a a thinking mistake right. that, the, that the virus wasn't so widespread. We could use this strategy that seems like it was working in Asian countries. Right. Um, but even in the Asian countries, I think there's some evidence that, that we talked about cross-reactive immunity. Like there were other Coronavirus-like infections that, that they've had, mm-hmm. they may have had some more extensive cross-reactive immunity than, or more, you know, sort of more more prevalent cross-reactive immunity than other other than, than the European countries in the U.S. Had, had. Right. So that could, that I mean, I don't know. The Sars-ish, answer, don't know, ish yes. Yeah. Who knows? Right. Who so, knows? Right. So I think I think we don't know fully why it didn't hit the Asian countries as as hard. But mm-hmm. I, I think it's important to think about. Mm. New Zealand is a really super interesting example. They mm. famously suppressed the disease at zero cases for 120 days. right? And then out of nowhere, the cases start rising again. Okay, well, what did they do? They locked down again. The problem is like that lockdown is now repeated forever. Yeah. They're yeah. gonna have to keep repeating the lockdown How over we, and over again. Or they'll just go through what we went through. And they're, a, they're an island nation that depends on tourism. I mean, fully, I think it was Dis- like- Ten percent of GDP, so very large fraction of GDP. Don't don't quote me on the number, but that that large fraction of GDP is gone, uh, basically permanently. Because who wants to sit in a fourteen day quarantine to visit someplace? Right, um, right. And they and people leaving the island are also gone. Are are are, are uh, you know? So that's just the traffic in and out of the island is out. And so you, yeah. You, so you have what you have is a continuous, and they've had a, like a seven to 10% decrease in their death, their, their GDP rate just this year.
0: Mm, mm.
1: You don't keep that, you basically are, if you wanna have, if you wanna isolate yourself from the rest of the world, you can do it, but it's gonna take you enormous, it's gonna be enormous cost. And that is not an option available to the United States. Yeah, absolutely. So
0: the New Zealand experience is interesting because they are relying on something that may or may not happen, which is a safe and effective vaccine as their savior because what else could they be waiting for? It's always gonna exist in the community at some level. Otherwise, we have to learn to live with it. And their way of living with it is shutting down their entire island forever.
1: But they're probably waiting for this finish line, right? Yeah, they're waiting for the vaccine. Now, what's the risk of that? Well, so um, the vaccine is, I have to say that more progress and rapid progress has been made on the vaccine that I anticipated. If you'd asked me in April would we would we be here mm. with phase three trials actually ongoing mm. for several vaccine candidates, I would have said there's no chance. Yeah, uh, I mean there aren't any human coronavirus vaccines. Yeah,
0: office said that. Paul office said the same thing on my show. Vaccine expert.
1: Yeah. So at that time. Uh, uh, okay. So. But now, here's the situation. We have, uh, we have these vaccine candidates, many of them look promising in the phase two trials. Um, the phase three trials need to be on large populations of people. Uh, why? Partly because the cases and deaths are declining. Mm-hmm. Ironically, that makes it more difficult to show that the vaccine is efficacious. Because you just let, let's say you do a vaccine. Uh, let's say you had did the, the the COVID vaccine before coronavirus came along at all. Right. Well, you'd never find it, it, it efficacious in preventing death because there was no risk of coronavirus. Exactly right. Yeah. Um,
0: so that's where so we're we, making it harder now. Yeah.
1: Right. So, so the decline of the cases and the decline in deaths makes it harder to show that the vaccine works.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's going to make it more difficult to show efficacy. Safety, we could still study.
1: Yeah, yeah. safety we could study, and mm-hmm. and there the, the uh, there have been some good news and bad news. Like many of the vaccine candidates have. Been safe yeah. in phase one, phase but there, but like there are reports now. There's a transverse myelitis transverse case. myelitis case. Yeah, in the, in the in UK, the AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca. AstraZeneca.
0: Yeah. Now that's a different
1: uh, viral model, right? Chimpanzee adenovirus.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a different than the mRNA
1: vehicle. But that... the mRNA vehicle hasn't really been used in human vaccines Ever. before. Ever. Ever. Right. Exactly. So it's so, totally novel. So, so I mean, I it could work. It right. could still work. Right. I, I think um, I'm waiting. I mean, I, if the data show that it's safe and effective, I'll be first I'll in be line. I'll be first in line. Yeah.
0: I have to look at that data. Yeah. People have asked me, well, will you and your kids get this thing? I'm like, well, I'll tell you what, as soon as I am convinced that the data looks good, I'll, I will. I'll go do it because I would like to get on a plane and go do things without thinking, well, I'm 47. So my risk profile is X. I have a, you know, genetic clotting disorders. And so endothelial dysfunction. So my risk is somewhere in the X percent. That's how I calculate my own risk. So I take reasonable precautions, but I'm not crazy because I desperately seek human connection and I'm willing to die rather than.
1: Well, I, I, it's probably three, two to three in a thousand for me. Yeah. I would rather live my life with that two to 3,000 risk if I happen to get it. Right than to not.
0: Oh, but you're gonna kill grandma by asymptomatically spreading it to her. I mean, when when I visited my 80 year old mom, I wore a mask. There you go. And that's what I would do with my parents. So let me think here. What you just said is be rational, take risk personally and decide based on open data. Don't censor people. Let's have actual scientific discourse instead of name calling and politicization. And let's look at this thing with clear, open eyes and listen to all viewpoints. Is that about right? I mean
1: I, I try to be controversial Zoom.
0: <laughs> well, you've done a you've done a good job by proxy. In person, I haven't heard anything that you've said that makes me go, "Oh my gosh, that's so controversial." It's called being rational. Now, the thing is, I'll get criticism even on, during this interview that, "Oh, I did you really pound him on this and pound him on that?" That's not my job. My job is to say, "Here is a guy who has a certain experience set that's very valuable. Let him Talk about what he thinks. And you guys can then debate it in the comments openly. That's called scientific discourse. It's actually just discourse. And sometimes I wonder because anything I post, you know, if I look at Facebook, for example, which is our biggest platform, 2 million people follow us there. If I put something there and you start reading the comments, sometimes you want to die a little because it's like the movie Idiocracy actually came true and you just go, oh, and it's on all sides. It's all sides. See, I
1: get referee reports all the time for my papers. So I'm used to that.
0: You're used to it, it, right? You're used to it. So, okay, we talked about Sweden a bit. We talked about New Zealand and we talked about Asian countries and why they were different than us. We talked about the U.S. Um, we talked about what we might wanna do moving forward. So do you think cases are just gonna continue to decline and deaths are gonna continue to decline here?
1: I mean, there's two points of view, right? So one one is that there's gonna be a second wave uh, that, that seems to be the the Fauci uh, right. point of view right now. Um, I don't see much evidence of that. Right. Like we haven't, so in the United States for instance, uh, we talk about if we had a second wave, we had New York and then a second wave, we didn't have a second wave. What okay. we had is a regional epidemic each place has had a first wave. That's what it looks like everywhere. Now it's possible. I mean, we don't know. The thing has only been around a few months that there could be one, but it would be, it, it's looking increasingly unlikely to me, but we will see.
0: Yeah. I'm with you. And I, uh, based on current information, now I can be proven wrong. And I've said this yeah. to my supporters who, they are people who subscribe to the show and we do private live shows is like 7,000 or odd of them. And I'll tell them things that I'm not comfortable fully vetted out for the public. So I go, this is my feeling right now based on data is that there's not a second wave that in this classic sense, there may be a second wave case-demic where we start testing a lot and we see a lot of asymptomatic positive PCR fragments. The, The second thing is what people don't seem to understand is that the first Wave, like you said, was it was a geographic thing where in a cooler climates like the northeast, you saw a massive rise and then a fall in more southern temperate climates is what you see kind of with influenza, which is a slower delayed rise and a low, long hump. And they're calling that second wave. That's still all part of the infectious pattern. yeah, and I think in the winter, it'll be interesting to see also schools. yeah, tell me your thoughts on schools because I, I think
1: it's I think it's criminal not to open schools. I agree like with you. Yeah, I think uh, I think the uh, we talk about safety. It is more s- unsafe to not let kids go back to school than to open up for schools. Absolutely, we, we are we are harming kids in a way that is irreparable and immoral. You're gonna get a horse's head in your bed from the teachers' union on that one. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, I think a lot of teachers want to be. They that, that's their, their vocation is to teach and they want to, to want to teach yeah. in person. How do you teach a first grader to read over Zoom? No, it's a crime.
0: Yeah. And, and, and the thing is they're doing the best they can. It's very, very hard. Uh, but this is one of the things that just gets me so upset because it's, again, it's a regressive tax on the poor. So you're saying basically that a person who depends on school for their meals, for their social interaction, for behavior control, for, cause mom is a single mom and can't it's, and how is she gonna work when you, it, it, we can hire nannies.
1: And yeah. assistance, they can't. I saw a picture. I think it was in San Jose Mercury News of two kids sitting outside of a, a Hispanic kids sitting outside of a Seven Eleven with their little Google Chromebooks. I saw that uh, using they, the Seven
0: Eleven, the Taco Bell Wi Fi, To Wi
1: Fi because they don't have Wi Fi at home. That is disgusting. It's terrible. It's heartbreaking. I, yeah, and, and you know, schools are not just simply places for teaching. Although that is incredibly important. Obviously.
0: Um, <laughs> you are Indian. I knew yeah, it. Just, uh, <laughs> it's for um, teaching only.
1: Nothing else. <laughs> But there, but there, there are also places where kids get their their nutrition. Uh, somewhere on I think on the order of a third of kids in the country have have a just subsidized school meals of some sort or another. Like a lot of their calories get come from there. Uh, it's places where they learn to socialize. They they uh, 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 they the the long run consequences of shutting that down are absolutely enormous. Even mm. the short run, mm. I, I suspect we'll start to see suicides jump up mm. in among adolescents mm. because they're not. The school school is good for their mental health as well.
0: I I I, uh, I have a close friend who's a physician whose daughter was twelve thirteen, and during the lockdown started to exhibit just the worst anxiety. Like he would describe this to me, uh, and and it was hard. I mean, this kid was beside herself. And, you know, to the point where it was medications and psychotherapy and all that, and he affluent guy, so he can afford all this. And then school started, some little bit in person, some little bit by Zoom, and the the anxiety started to evaporate. And, he, we forget that we're these social animals and especially kids. Yeah. I used to look forward, the summer, as much as I love summer, you look forward to school starting because I'm gonna see Joey and Chad and we're gonna hang out and yeah. cause some crime, man. <laughs> I mean, that was what it was like.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, uh, for kids, especially that, that playtime is inc- incredibly psychologically important. Um, the, the, to deny them that mm. seems, uh, I mean, okay, it's one thing if they really were facing high risk. So but tell me about that
0: because the, the the teachers will push back and say, but there's the, the teachers with chronic disease who are elderly who yeah
1: I think we should we should take that into account like right. I think uh, like this sc- and different school districts should creatively manage that right, right. so if you're a 62 year old teacher and you have diabetes right your school district should make some accommodation for you so you don't have to teach in agree person. absolutely do
0: you think we should be paying teachers more too in general.
1: Yeah, as I mean, an economist, I, I think. I, well, I mean, I think. I think uh, we. 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 Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's some debate in economics about how much ex- extra pay correlates to outcomes. But as a whole, teach. I mean, I honor my teachers. I think they do incredibly, they did incredibly valuable things for me, me too, and also for the for the for the kids. so I, I'm not against that. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm fine with that. Yes. I, I, but I think we should use the resources, different school districts use the resources they have to creatively manage it so that kids can actually come in person. Yeah. in some places, maybe you can't social distance. You need more masks in places where 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 you can social distance you can figure out. I mean, you have to like creatively manage that. If t- young teachers who face very little risk, let them come in. the older teachers who are at risk, they can, maybe they can help help the younger teachers by helping them grade, create curriculum, teach online. I mean, I think there's some mix, but the absolute must is you have to have the kids in person. Yeah, yeah. With each other or else you, you can't actually have schooling.
0: Now, you know what I think is happening too, and it's related to this, is this safety creep. So in the early days of this thing, when they talked in Santa, right here in the Bay about shutting down schools, we were thinking it'll be two, three weeks. And then they said, it's gonna be till the end of the year. The school, the school year, yeah. there was absolute horror and panic on the part of parents and kids. Like, what? You're doing what? Now, when school's supposed to reopen, it doesn't. And people have just accepted it as, well, all right, it's the norm. we're keeping people safe now. It's the norm. Our kids are slowly dying a little. We're destroying poor families. We're creating a cycle of poverty, violence, substance abuse. But you know what? Safety,
1: safety first. And yeah, it, it's not safe. It's not safe. It it's the opposite safe. of safe. Yeah, I, and I think uh, if you think about what the evidence, the scientific evidence is saying, the teachers and staff pose more of a risk to each other mm. than the kids pose to them. Mm. There's there's this agree, uh, there's yeah. a study done by uh, this group in Iceland. It was published in the New England Journal. It's absolutely fascinating. So what they did is they 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 took twelve percent of the uh, random sample of the of the Icelandic population and they did PCR testing on every single one of them. Mm and they identified the virus from every single one that, that, that was positive and they, and they sequenced the genome of every virus. Mm. Why is that important? Because the, the virus has these mutations that give it like a fingerprint. Um, and they did this detailed contact tracing study where they, and because they did the genetic analysis, like let's say I, I have virus A with mutation A and you have virus A and B yeah, with mutation A and B. Well, it's possible that I passed it to you because you added on mutation B but it's, it's unlikely you passed it to me, right? And if I have just mutation A and you have just mutation B, then we didn't pass it to each other, right? Separate sources, yeah. Okay. What they what they found was that there was not one single case of a child passing it to an adult. Not one.
0: Case. Many, many
1: cases of of parents passing it to their kids. Yeah, but not one the other way. So why are we ignoring this data? I don't know.
0: Uh, and you know now this. So here's the counter that that the mainstream media will say. Well look at what's happening at Notre Dame or wherever, there's thousands of cases and oh my God. Not one
1: hospitalization, by the way. Not a single one. Yeah, I'm, I mean, talking about college kids, right? Yeah. So yeah, so there, there's not one hospitalization. Now, but what about these is just these horrible vectors of disease for the elderly? I mean, asymptomatic spread happens. Mm-hmm. That's what the, That's what the evidence says, but right. it's much less common than symptomatic spread. So if I, uh, the disease is spread by mostly by droplets. You can have these aerosolization events it seems like, but they're mostly, they're, they're relatively rare compared to the droplet spread. Right. Asymptomatic spread happens, but it's much more rare. Right. The, they, the, is unlikely. So just to give you some sense, uh, Sweden kept its schools open mm. 15 and under, including daycare all the way through the epidemic. Mm-hmm. Even when cases were rising, even right. deaths were rising and they did this co- detailed study compared, compared to Finland. The, opening and closing the schools does not have any appreciable effect on the spread of the epidemic. Then what the hell are we doing? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. I think the evidence on this is so strong. It's not, it's, it's, and, and you read it and, and you just weep because you're saying, okay, we're making the, a, a scientifically uninformed decision. You know what it is?
0: It is also coming to this thing of em- what I call empathy versus compassion. So empathy is feeling another person's pain as your own and acting from that feeling. They ask us to do this in medicine all the time, more empathy. But what they don't realize is empathy is a poison when it comes to things like this, because here's what happens. I read an article in some mainstream media piece about a 28 year old teacher who died of COVID after school was open. And you go, oh my God, a young teacher died. We should never have opened the school. I feel for her and her family and she's young and we should just stop everything. Whereas when you look at the case, okay, what were the comorbidities? They were there, what's going on? And that's one person, did she get it from school? We don't know, could have gotten it somewhere else, but we're going to now fail to do what we ought to have done which is compassion, which is cognitive empathy. Understand the suffering, Look at the bigger picture. What's the most wise thing we can do for the most people to relieve the suffering and detach a little bit? Well, if you do that, you go, well, actually that's true, but we could have provided mass to the teachers and given schools an opening so that these children who are dying of diseases of despair
1: or are going to, Get a chance, but but we don't do that. I mean, you're, you're you're arguing for. I mean, that's a really nice way to put it. You're arguing for empathy for everybody, not just for their, not just for a few, uh, like the, the the select few.
0: And the and the, the trick about empathy is it doesn't work on everybody. So yeah. uh, Paul Bloom has written about this psychologist. Ah. It, it is a narrow spotlight, not just on individual, but on tribe. Ah. So empathy evolved for as an in group way. So for your kids, empathy is absolutely appropriate. My God, you yeah. better feel their pain because they are you. But for a population, you don't empathize with them. Yeah. That's why, and, and the charities have known this for years. They don't show you a population of starving people. They show your your help can help this child, you know, Sally in Sub-Saharan Africa, look at her. And then you go, absolutely. Cause that's how we're wired. Oh, that's yeah,
1: it's really interesting. No, I think that's really, I think that's really right. But, but I think compassion in the, in the sense you mean it is exactly the right thing here, right? Mm-hmm. So we have to understand. Uh, so like the the scientific evidence says that the teachers face about as much risk as other professions doing their work. Not from the kids, again, from other staff members. Mm. So, but you you act on that. You say, okay, well, given that that's the case, so let's workplace. structure the workplace to reduce that risk as much as we can. What they're doing is a vital function for the kids, for society at large. Yeah. They are absolutely essential. Yeah. Um, so they're taking a risk. We should honor them for taking that risk. Just like we honor the the doctors that have come in or the nurses that have come in to care for their patients. right? They're not doing something that's less vital than that. Mm.
0: It's funny, cause you'll see memes where it was like, you know, teachers will say, we didn't sign up for this. And the nurses will say, neither did we. We didn't sign up to put ourselves at risk, but we do our essential job. Someone wrote a nurse wrote an op-ed and It's not a real contest between who's the bigger martyr. It's it's the idea is that they're both honored as absolutely essential. Um, And it's tough because you do feel for people too who are at risk and that's why it's nuanced. And something you even opened the show with where you said you're heartbroken about the suicide statistics, that's because what you're showing is love in the face of suffering. Love and concern in the face of suffering will lead you to feel that way, right? Because you go, I can't, this is terrible. So let's have the discourse from a place of compassion. And, and the way that you've been treated, I think is just abhorrent um, because that, that's, not, that's not a compassionate response. It's let's, let's talk, if we disagree, that's fine. And then we can have the argument, but why are we vilifying people? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, um, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have much to complain. I mean, I actually have been fortunate in many ways. So, I mean, and actually it's been interesting from a professional point of view to be able to contribute at all to this. Mm. Uh, it's it's it, I mean, in many ways gratifying that I've had something to say. Um, but uh, but I, but I think let, let's I I completely agree with the spirit of it. Let's look at the data. Let's make decisions that understand that we are we're we're we're, we're making decisions that affect the lives of everybody, not just the people with COVID. Mm. Like COVID is not the only public health uh, danger that we face, and that uh, that there are trade offs, there are risks on all sides. There's not a safe option where we can say. So like I think like cheap. Rhetorical tricks like, oh, you only care about the economy, you mm. don't care about lives. I think that's, mm. I think for the most part, that's there, it's aimed at shutting down just conversation as opposed to, as opposed to having serious conversation. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Man,
0: was there anything else you wanted to talk about? I think we covered it. <laughs> so
1: Thank you. Oh my gosh. This
0: was such a enjoyable conversation for me because it allows an airing of this kind of side of the conversation that I just don't think we're getting in a clear-eyed way. So if, if mainstream media does it, it's politicized by Fox. If 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 the left does it, it's politicized by the media. I'm trying to create a space here and hopefully we can have more conversations where we just get out some interesting information in a clear
1: way. Well, I, I'm really honored to be able to talk with you. And actually, I just it's been really interesting to be able to have this conversation. I mean, I think there's stuff we probably probably disagree on a little. I don't know about sure, Tom, sure. but like, but I think having a, a space where you can actually do that, I think all of science should be like
0: that. I 100% agree. So we're gonna try increasingly to use this space for that kind of good um, guys like, I mean, this was a conversation, you can disagree. I want you to, I want you to leave comments. I want you to leave ad hominem attacks out of it if you can. Let's try to use our critical thinking. Do me a favor, just share this thing. It'll be on a podcast. It'll be on my website, zdogmd.com, It'll be on YouTube, it'll be on Facebook. Ultimately what we do is we make a little square out of it and caption it and put it on Facebook too so you can read along. The transcript will be out in a couple days. I love you guys, please stay well. Please let's stop stifling discussion and having it. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya, I mean, what a real thrill. Please come back. I'd love to. Awesome, awesome, and we out, peace. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. (laughs) And so at this point, I just gotta ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe.